0: Verjay Brewer. To meet her today, you'd have no idea that she's a survivor of decades of abuse and trauma, beginning as a sexually exploited child, exploited by family members no less. Her story illustrates why we can't even pretend to know what justice should look like until we know the backstory of people who get crossways with the law. Her story also illustrates the redemptive power of persistent, unconditional love, which in Verge's case came in answer to prayer in the form of Sylvester Brewer, now her husband. Hear her story. Listen to her voice. She deserves to be heard, and we need to hear. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and commentary about justice Healing, and Safer Communities. Welcome, Virjay. We're really happy to have you with us in this program. This is going to be a very instructive to the people who listen, and it's going to be sometimes hard to listen. But when we are sitting here right now, we are in a nice home that you have, you're healthy, you're happy, you have a husband who loves you, and he's stuck with you through the hard times and the good, and you two have made it work your lives individually, but also together, you've made them work. But when you were a child and a young adult, could you ever have imagined that you would be in this circumstance right now?
1: Never in a million years. Um, First, let me thank you, David, for allowing me this opportunity. But never in a million years would I have thought or believed that I could even have these things, um, happiness or home, someone that loves me for me. None of that ever crossed my mind. Never did I think any of those things was a possibility for someone like me.
0: Well, we're going to get into that. And what we're going to cover is some ground that involves some serious trauma to you. And we appreciate your courage in being willing to share that because it's difficult to go back and relive some of these experiences. But you have experienced the trauma of starting at a very early age as a child, being sexually and physically abused and exploited. And you've been exposed to traumatic things that have happened around you, you've ultimately, probably largely as a reaction to that, but also cultural factors in your environment, uh, became involved with alcohol and other drugs and became addicted, seriously addicted. And probably largely because of all of that combined, you ended up having multiple experiences with the criminal justice system, experiencing incarceration. You got out, you've had ups, you've had downs, and you've ended up with a good man, in a good marriage, living a good life. And you know, there are a lot of people for whom that message, your story, will give hope. Some people will just learn from it because they've never experienced anything like that. But there are others who are or have. So thank you for sharing your story for the benefit of both of those groups. Let's start with your childhood. Where where did you live as a child? In Chicago, Illinois,
1: on Independence Boulevard uh, with my mother and my father and his mother it was a family home I'm um, a three story family home building. Um, my mother and father lived on the third floor. My father's mother was on the second floor, and an uncle and his family were on the first floor.
0: What neighborhood was that in, for those who are familiar with Chicago?
1: The west side of Chicago, um, Roosevelt and Independence.
0: Tell us what life was like.
1: Life was. Um, A state of constant fear, uh, a state of no esteem, um, abuses of all kinds of unimaginable abuses. I went through all those type of abuses and traumas from the time I was seven years old until I was 12 years old. um, I just existed. I did not have a life. Um, It was riddled with fear physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of those things at the hand of those who were to care for me, who were to rear me, who were to give me morals. Um, None of that was available to myself.
0: You mentioned abuse that started, and you described a period of time from age seven to age 12. What kind of abuse
1: it started with the physical abuse, um, whippings, um, by my um, father and his mother. Um, one of the scriptures they would quote was from Proverbs, um, I think 13 and 24, but the one that does not chastise this child um, doesn't love them. And that was used often um, to um, correct us for whatever they thought was wrong. If that wrong was um not cleaning something correctly if that wrong was not getting the grades they thought that we should get um if that wrong was saying something that they thought was inappropriate we were whipped for it um and when i say we i mean my brother and myself and when we received these whoopings these whippings beatings they weren't whipping they were beatings um it was so abusive that We would have to stay out of school for days to heal before they would let us go back um, to public school. We were whooped with extension cords, extension cords, boards, or whatever um, was handy to them at that time. Um, The worst whoopings were with the extension cords and the studded belts. Um, But there were other um, instruments that was used to um, whoop us as well. Um, Along with the physical abuse came the sexual abuse. Um, It started with the touching, uh, as early as I can remember, um, six to seven years old. I was either six or seven when it started. Um, And that was at the hand of my step-grandfather. His name was Walter. Um, He was a master manipulator. He would um, sexually abuse me and tell me um, not to say anything or things would be done. to hurt my mother or my brother or myself. And then he turned that around and said, if I would do these things, he wouldn't allow me to get the whippings that um, I was receiving.
0: So your abuser was able to manipulate you by one, threats, but number two, by also the carrot and the stick, you know, the, the carrot was, he'd say, I'll protect you. Yes. So your abuser, disguised himself, so to speak, as a protector.
1: Well, he had me on both ends. It was like um, which was the lesser of two evils. And when I weighed it out, um, when I weighed it out now, um, there was no lesser or greater. It was just all great because it got him what he wanted. And that abuse, um, the sexual abuse that um, robbed me of a girl's childhood innocence, that fairy tale that I thought that I was entitled to meeting uh, Mr. Wright to sweep me off my feet that night in shining armor and everything was going to be great. He was going to love me and I was going to love him back and I was going to have the picket fence, the whole thing. None of that, um, all of that was taken away from me. All of that, I had no, at the point of that, I had no um, image of what the future should be because that was my reality. So what I thought was, to be my life or should have been my life was all just a fairy tale. That was the fairy tale that I could have those things, and I didn't.
0: When we were talking before we uh, got together today to record this, you talked about seeing child videos, the, the Disney-type videos, the, the fairy stories. What was your reaction to those?
1: lies lies all lies just made up stuff or i thought that wasn't for my people it wasn't for it wasn't for black people it wasn't for black children none of that was meant for us
0: so your world was your home and your home was filled with sexual and physical abuse but it got worse
1: not only sexual and physical abuse but emotional And mental abuse as well. Yes, every day it got worse. And it never changed. It never changed. Day in, day out. Either I was used as a servant or as a sexual tool for not only um, my grandfather, but for those that he shared me with. And that's exactly what I mean, those that he shared me with, that he gave me to.
0: Tell us more about that.
1: He was a trucker for... um, A beverage company and um, he would take me um, on the truck with him and what I know now to be as um, rest stations he would have some of his acquaintances um, meet up there and he would give me plain and simple he would give them to me give me to them and um, I had to do what they asked me to do or This was the same man that said that he would not let me be um, whipped, would whip me if I didn't do the things that his friends were asking me to do. And that meant um, sexual intercourse, oral sex, um, the sex where they would hit me, all of that, those things. How old were you? (laughs) That started at the age of seven.
0: How long did that last?
1: until the age of 12, when I became pregnant with my eldest son. And the sexual abuse was then exposed at that that time publicly. It was known privately, but nothing was done about it. It was ignored.
0: Where was your mother during all this time?
1: My mother was there in the home with us, but she also worked. And my mother was also physically abused by my father. There was always a fight. There was always screaming and hollering. Um, She didn't protect me. She couldn't protect herself. She couldn't stop the physical abuse of herself or my brother or myself.
0: So this was an environment in which your reality as a child was of horrendous levels of abuse and trauma.
1: All around me, if it wasn't, Happening to me it was happening to someone else if I wasn't being beat either my brother was being beat or my mother was being beat and um, The truth of the matter is it was a respite. It was a a Break for me when someone else was going through and I wasn't because I was the main target day in and day out I was a target of my stepfather the target of my grandmother the target of my grandfather so every day someone had was taking turns with me for an abuse so when someone else uh, when my mother and my father was fighting i knew that there was no attention on me you know i could rest Uh, my mind was constantly going to the point it was so traumatic it was so bad i had a friend um that i went to school with she stayed down the street from me and um She fell from a third-floor window and died. Um, And while I missed her, I thought, wow, she got out of this. Why couldn't it have been me? Then I wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. And it was at that time, at her passing, when I attempted my first suicide. Um, My father, Charles, he had um, pills. Um, They were called... um, number three Tylenols and I took some of them because I wanted to die and I was angry because I didn't die and I was angry with God because he let me stay here so in my mind that said that he wanted it was okay for me to be going through what I was going through and for the things that were being done to me to continue that was my first suicide attempt that was my my first outburst my first outburst of uh, anger uh, with God with everybody. I I labeled everybody then. I hated everybody. No one loved me. No one even cared for me except my brother because he was going through the same thing, not the sexual abuse to my knowledge, but the physical abuse. So he understood. We were never able to go outside. We didn't have any friends. All we had was servitude. All All I had was sexual abuse. All I had was degradation. I was told I was dumb. I was fat. I was ugly. All of those things, that that was the norm for me. That was the norm. So I, those things just covered me um, like a blanket, and you learn to, you know, just wear them and keep moving. I learned to just wear them and keep moving.
0: Did you ever talk to your mother about this? Tell her about the sexual abuse.
1: No, I didn't, because I was told that if I told, she would be killed. And although I felt that she protected me, I still love my mother, and I didn't want... If, the minimum protection that she was giving me was taken away. If if she was taken away, I would have nothing.
0: So after age 12, how did things develop then?
1: After age 12, at the age of 12, I think we may need to back up a, a little bit because at the age of 12, I became pregnant with my eldest son, and then I had to have that child. I was further ostracized because I couldn't graduate eighth grade. I could not attend that year of school because I was pregnant and at that time, um, that wasn't something that was done. It was more about them protecting um, their image than anything to do with me. That was very hard because they tried to get rid of that child, but I was too far along when they, when it became public that I could not have an abortion. But I was constantly um, beat with that child inside of me or made to take things to make me in the hopes that I would miscarry that child. But I didn't. Um, He was born January the night, 1978. Um, And my mother's, my mother had a sister in Mississippi that wanted to raise a child. And I wouldn't let him go because I felt that I had to protect him because I felt that the same things that were done to me would be done to him. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust anybody but my brother. He's the only one that I trusted. Didn't trust my mother. Didn't trust my father. Didn't trust my aunt. Nobody, so I felt that I had to protect that child.
0: What was his name?
1: His name was Lionel Antoine Thomas Hawkins. He is now um, transitioned on. He's not, he passed on um, at the age of 33. But um, after his birth, um, again, I need to back up a little bit because I was pregnant, I was taken out of school, but that story got around to everyone, so... um, the kids would just come by the house you know i would see them outside and i could hear them um talking about me um and and th- their parents came down and got them and told them stay away from that house stay away from her she's a fast nasty girl they didn't want me want their children to be acquainted with me they didn't want their children to play with me which is um i i They weren't playing with me anyway, because we could, I could, I never saw them outside of school, but they didn't even want them to socialize with me inside of school. You're going to be like her. Don't you ever talk to her. Don't you let her tell her any, tell you anything. Are you going to be just like her, fast like her, loose like her? All of those things. Um, it was very hard. And on the other hand, that made the, the, the males, the children, the male kids of my age, um want to um, have sex with me. No other way to put that. Um, They wanted to um, have their introduction into that world through me. So, um, that was very hard.
0: One of the things that just screams out at me is you have a 12-year-old girl who's pregnant. Yeah. Okay. That just screams of abuse and should have triggered all sorts of support and intervention, uh, the Department of Children and Family Services, all sorts of things. You haven't mentioned any of that. Did any of that happen? Did the school people at school or anywhere else come to investigate what was it that caused a 12-year-old girl, under the age of consent, to become pregnant?
1: No, not for that. The Department of Children and Family Services did, once that I remember, um, come to the home because, as I explained to you before, the, the beatings that my brother and I took with We would have to stay out of school until we heal so we missed a lot of days and for that reason um, they came out and for you to understand this you also need to know the spiritual side of of the I don't know the word to use for this the persona of of the church that was there uh, which was held in our home on the um, second floor those church people also knew about it Um, so When the Department of Children and Family Service came out, um, because I don't know who reported it at the school, but I do know that the school sent them out. Um, They rallied around um, my grandmother, who was the quote unquote pastor of the church, and my father, her son, and said that those things weren't true. And after that, they left there. They didn't even they didn't even interview myself or my brother to ask us, was those things true?
0: You were not interviewed yourself?
1: I myself was never interviewed, but I heard I was there present in the kitchen while they were talking to my parents and my grandparents in the um, dining room. Right there. They could see me, (laughs) but they didn't ask me any questions. Was that true or not? But there were church members there that said that that wasn't true. Because we're here three times a week. For services. And we don't see any of that. None of that ever happened. And that's the way that that went. And when I became pregnant and had to leave school, no one ever showed up. No one ever wondered. No one ever asked me, what happened? How did this happen to you? Never. All I got was, she's dirty. She's nasty. You see what happened if you fast like her? Those type of things. Inside of the house, I was called a slut. And it was not my grandfather's child. It was the boys that I was running around with at school. How could I run around with anyone when I was never allowed out of the house except for school and the hours of school? And we had a certain amount of time to get from school to home. And if we didn't make it within that time, if that time, if we were late five minutes, that was a whooping. So you best believe that I was on time with getting home.
0: So... Inside the home, it was covered up, Mm -hmm. you were suffering the abuse, Mm -hmm. your mother was probably from the sounds of things in denial Mm -hmm. and afraid, Mm -hmm. and you were afraid and being the victim of horrendous abuse of various kinds. Outside the home, the people who should be seeing all sorts of warning signs, apparently were not other than the physical abuse when you had missed school because of the beatings but when DCFS came you weren't no one even asked you what had happened no one asked you when you became pregnant who was the father
1: no one ever asked that my grandfather was the father right no one ever asked that no one ever asked myself or my brother or anything
0: they just assumed and accused you Of being, your words, a slut. Their words, a slut. Mm -hmm. That it was because of something that you had done and that therefore you had brought on yourself. That is correct. How did that make you feel?
1: That made me feel closed in on all, all, that made me feel helpless. Because they're dangling in front of me what I thought was a little bit of hope that I could be rescued was just snatched away. There was no hope left after that. After they came and didn't help me, I knew that there was not going to be help for me from anyone else. I knew that there wasn't going to be any help for me for the church people because they backed her. Her being my grandmother, the pastor of the church, and her son. There was nothing left for me. There was no place else that I could get hope. My mother did at one point in time ask me, was anything going on? I lied because I feared for her. I feel for her, and then that fear for her was more fear for me because I know if she was taken out of the equation, then there would be no holes barred. There would be, I don't even know how the season could be more open on me, but I feared what would come after that if she wasn't there.
0: And all this before you're even a teenager. <laughs>
1: before I was, I don't even, I don't even, <laughs> Say that I was ever a child, much less a teenager. I was just an entity existing in this world
0: and being used and, and being abused.
1: Used and abused
0: by adults.
1: By adults
0: for their by
1: the children of the church. Even they ex- exercised me. You know, their parents told them not to um, to stay away from me. In church, they couldn't even sit by me. I was. I was. Um, what do they call it? I was the um, I was preached about in church
0: preached about.
1: Yes, I, I was the subject of, of preachings in church um, that further. Um, proved that if you spare the rod and spoil the child, this this will happen. And, the, and, and and I remember the one that said this is why they took their kids um, out of the town and stoned them because of children like her. Those type of things.
0: So, in other words, using religion oh, yeah. to protect the abusers and justify the abuse and turn it yes. on to you yes. as a sinner. Yes. A perversion of religion.
1: A perversion of religion for their benefit, for them to allow, to just I don't know if they were trying to justify within themselves what they were doing to me, um, but that's what they did. They used it to justify themselves and uh, to justify them before the eyes of the congregation
0: now i'm not going to skip ahead to this right now but for the sake of those listening you now have learned the truth about god and you have been rescued from these perversions of teachings about god and the nature of god but we'll get to that
1: that was a long process because i hated god but as much as i hated him then That's how much I love him now because I learned the truth later.
0: That's important for some of the people listening to know. It is. And I hope they continue to listen to the rest of your story. So let's move on from this. You were 12, 13 years old. How did your life unfold after that?
1: At the age of 13, um, I had a child. Um, At that point in time, my mother finally did leave my father. We moved out of that um, building um, to further on the west side on Roosevelt and Carlisle. My mother had an apartment there. Now at this point in time, because she had to work because she had two children and was single, she still had to go out and work. So that made me again um, caretaker and caregiver of my older brother of the house and the things that needed to be done there. Plus I had to take care of a child that I did not know how to take care of. I was told just make sure that he's dry and feed him and I'll do the rest when I get home. Make sure that your brother has something to eat, um, that you all eat, um, have something to eat. That was my life again. You know, so again, I'm becoming increasingly angry. But at this time, you know, um, (laughs) she wasn't there. So I could go outside with the baby and that's when I started meeting my peers, another set of peers, and those peers were getting high. They were drinking, but it seemed like they were having fun. Fun was never um, identified. I never identified what fun was, but they seemed happy. So I wanted to seem happy too. And so um, I gravitated toward them and I was glad, gladly accepted what was offered to me from them. What was offered to me from them was more alcohol, and that was when I was first introduced to marijuana and rush, those things. What's that? Rush is a substance, It's a liquid substance that you would sniff and it will give you a higher euphoria uh, for a period of time. The marijuana um, made me uninhibited. It made me laugh because I, I was a socially awkward. I did not know how to um, socialize with um people much less those of my own age so pretty much wherever you said or whatever you um suggested i was willing to do i was willing to do if that meant having some fun and some freedom and i did it and i enjoyed it and i sought it more and more and more that was the beginning of um my alcoholism and my addiction
0: well alcohol in particular is a depressant on the brain, and sometimes it can cause people to, for a period of time when they're under the influence of the alcohol, forget their troubles, become uninhibited and all of that, and have it becomes an escape for them. And that in itself psychologically is addictive, aside from the chemical properties, the effect of the alcohol on your brain. But you're so young, the effect of alcohol and other drugs on the brain of someone that young is very different than that when later on you're someone 21 years of age or over. That's why the age for drinking is 21, by the way, because alcohol has is highly addictive to people. Before that time, and here you were, 13, 14 years old.
1: You have to understand, too. Um, I became, I, I started drinking more when I got with those peers, but alcohol was introduced to me um, through my stepfather. Um, he gave me my first drink. And another scripture um, it's good for the, um, the stomach. You know, that's the one that they use. But for me, alcohol at that time, it was... Um, a pain reliever, and what I mean by that, it made the sexual things, the penetration, the um the um the whippings or whatever you call that when you they're having sex with you, that made it less painful. so um alcohol to me was a a a, a depressant, a pain depressant, and then it's sh- I was slinging for it all the way to the other um end of that when I got with my new friends, and alcohol became a joyful thing. So um can you imagine that confusion? And and at that age, from that age, from seven until the age that I was now twelve, thirteen, um, it was creating a lot of things for me. Um, not the just the euphoria that I thought, but it was also um causing me to be crazy. It was mentally breaking me down. It was causing that part of me that no one saw or thought needed to be addressed including myself I was the mental things that it was doing for me the um which was easy because uh the things that had occurred before that again I just it was just a continuation of what was going on with me if you can if you can imagine that I thought this was the better part. I thought what I went through as a child in the early years was a bad part, but this part was a better part. So I thought that this was the progression of life and how it should go.
0: Virgé, I can't imagine it. I understand what you're saying, but can I imagine it? No. And there are a lot of people listening who are like me, where I'm sure it's difficult for them to imagine. The problem is that there are people who are listening for whom your story is probably all too real to them. So let's talk about how things unfolded in your life, how they've progressed in some ways and regressed in others.
1: Well, um, I was introduced to a man that was uh, 16 years my senior, and I had my second child by this man. How old were you? I had him I was had my second son. I was pregnant with him at 17 and had him at 18. Um and this was a married man also I need to say that as well. But um he introduced me to things that I had never been introduced before. Like going to see a movie, sitting down in a restaurant eating.
0: You um, had never been to a movie before that? No. You'd never sat down in a restaurant to eat. No.
1: No, and he introduced me to those things, and I didn't realize that at the time that those were things to um, get me to do what it was that he wanted. Um, Along with that, there there was the abuse of him because if I didn't do what he wanted me to do, there was the physical abuse there, but also those things that he was doing for me were being taken away as well. Um,
0: You were being manipulated.
1: Again, (laughs) But um, and, and it, he was an older man. Um, the men that had caused me all the, the abuses in my life were older men, so I thought this is where I was supposed to be with whom I was supposed to be with. So um, his wife found out that relationship was severed. Um, I went back um, to the things that I knew, the alcohol, the drugs. So now I'm hanging out in the streets, um, and those things uh, progressed. I didn't have a job, but I still had this kid, and I still had these friends. But now, things aren't free anymore. I have to become, I have to produce some money to get these things. So that's when I started stealing. Um, and that's when my circuit um, through the judicial system started. Um, all of the things that I have suffered, or that I have gone through um, in the judicial system was because of my need to have drugs, or alcohol, or both, and the things that I had to do to obtain those things. And it wasn't that I was forced to do those things, I did those things so that I could be um, in that state where there was no um, pressure, there was no pain.
0: You could escape.
1: I could escape. But the escape was always temporary. So I had to create it again and again and again, however, by whatever means necessary. If that meant selling my body, that's what I did. If that meant um, stealing, that's what I did. If that meant selling drugs, that's what I did. And all of those things landed me in jail to the, to the extent that eventually I ended up in prison.
0: And what did you go to prison for?
1: I went to prison for um, delivery of a controlled substance.
0: How did that come about, that you had moved from being a user to selling? I
1: sold to use and I used to sold. That's, um, I don't mean to be rude about it, but that's just the simple fact of it. I sold drugs in my body to get drugs. And I um, was arrested for that.
0: Yeah, I made a career, as you know, as a federal prosecutor, and much of that was spent prosecuting, investigating, and prosecuting large-scale drug trafficking organizations. But at the federal level, we uh, weren't dealing with, weren't prosecuting people who were at the low end of that line of distribution. We were going after the higher level people. People at the lower end were people who, as you say, whether it be cocaine or methamphetamine, they were people who were uh, selling, distributing, so that they get money to buy drugs for themselves. So that's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? That you were- That's
1: exactly what I did. You
0: were selling to use and- the two of them were highly connected and the only way to break that cycle of course is to do something to reduce that craving that meant that the brain craving the dopamine that is released from using those types of drugs putting you in jail didn't solve that problem did it
1: no it didn't because it didn't solve that problem because those issues weren't addressed when i was incarcerated no one said that no one did a clinical breakdown of what was happening to me or what had happened to me no one told me that you think that you're that you were selling drugs and drinking alcohol um to support a habit but you were doing that no one said you were doing that because of the emotional abuse the physical abuse the mental abuse that you have suffered that you have your brain. None of that was told me.
0: So this (laughs) is from from my perspective as someone who spent a career in the criminal justice system this is painful because essentially what happened to you your experience with the criminal justice system was again people were trying to punish this badness out of you. Instead of trying to Identify what is the cause of all this that is going on in this woman who is suffering. I mean, even even asking about your life, having the conversation we're having right now, to be able to understand what brought you to this point, it would have become obvious that sending you to jail or to prison wasn't going to do anything to change your life, other than to intervene for a period of time but it wasn't going to solve the problems. They were still going to be there as soon as you got out.
1: They never, the, the problem was never addressed. The only time that I was asked of my um, my life's history was one time um, uh, for an offense that I had committed, and the, uh, the court-appointed lawyer came to me and asked me about my background, and I told him, and he used that, he took that before the judge to get me probation. Um, and I was given probation, but um, I said, "Ah, uh, you know, so I could use this to my advantage. Well, that's good because you guys owe me because y'all never did anything to help me or stop the abuse that I was going through. And if y'all say that because I went through this and now you now know it, you're going to let me go, then I, I should have a couple more terms at this. And that's what I did. So I took that information and I used it when I was incarcerated again. Well, it's because of this, because of the abuse that I suffered. That's why I'm here. That's why That's why I came back. Because that was their favorite quote. We'll see you when you get back. And it was true. I would do something else then back up in jail. But again, all they said was I told you we'll be back. No one said that um, there's... Um, a a program of recovery that you might try that may be beneficial to you. And no one ever said the most important things that you have to address those issues that brought you here, not the usage of the drugs, but why you use, such as because of the abuse that you're not addressing. And the trauma. And the trauma. None of that ever came up. And when I was finally introduced to a 12-step program, I didn't address those issues because of the shame, because of the hurt.
0: We'll get to that here pretty quick. Let me just say, for the benefit of those who are listening, that the episode that will follow this one, I, I conducted an interview of a judge who spent most of his career as a judge, presiding over a problem-solving court, most of which was a, a drug court that he presided over, and in the uh, those type of courts, problem-solving courts, those are courts that focus on people that are high risk of recidivism, meaning coming back, returning, we'll see you later, we'll see you again, and high-need, high-risk, high-need people. You would have fit exactly into those criteria. Had you been in a problem-solving court, it uh, maybe some things you would have been spared and maybe others would have been spared some of the consequences that flow from just continuing to pass you through the system. You can pass through the a school without ever learning anything and graduate. You can pass through the criminal justice system without ever receiving anything that really helps change the course of your life. But problem-solving courts, I'm just going to, that little quick word, listen to the next episode to find out more about problem solving courts, which wasn't the experience you had. So I never knew that such an entity existed. Well, for the most part, it didn't. It's relatively new that these things are starting to happen and they aren't the norm, but they are court a, a an approach to justice that needs more support because it is resource intensive, but lives change and you will enjoy listening to to judge jeff ford's episode when he talks about that but let's get back to you so um i've i've
1: had two more children um i'm living with my mother because their fathers are out of the picture um we moved my mother and i and and the children we moved from chicago to a suburb of illinois Carroll stream um But again, because I had not dealt with the issues inside of me, because I still had so much um, anger and hurt inside of me um, that I did, that was unresolved or even addressed, unaddressed, um, that lifestyle didn't go away. Uh, Whenever um, something didn't go the way that I thought it should, or or I had to work for something, um, and I couldn't handle something, I went to the comfort zone. And the comfort zone for me was um, alcohol and drugs. So uh, my children were taken from me and put in the custody of my mother. Um, and to that extent, I was like, okay, it's your turn. Um, you raise them because I, we didn't talk about the child that my mother and my stepfather had together, but I was over her as well as far as being a care. Um, give it for her. I was like, "Well, I took care of yours. Now you could take care of mine." So with the gloves off and no children, all things just magnified. I was just out there bad. I was just out there bad, and I thought that I was living good, that I was having fun. But I was study tearing me down and those around me. I never thought about the effect that I would have on the people, you know, that did love me and the people that did know what I went through and wanted to offer me that support. It was like, nah, it's too late. You don't mean it. No, I'm not trying to hear that. I just want to do me. I just want to have some fun. Reality, no, you keep that over there. That's not what I want. No. And so that's the way that my life went. Again, it was centered around my comfort zone, what was best for me, what I thought was best for me. And that's what I did. Um, There was no in between. It was in the morning, getting drunk or high, and the afternoon, dinner, evening, night, the same thing.
0: Now, Brigitte, you're in a very different place today. (laughs) Yes. How did you get from there to where you are today? Tell us about that.
1: Well, I was living that life that I was living. Um, My mother became ill. Um, My mother had um, cancer and some other medical things going on. And um, she pleaded with me to get myself together, to take care of the kids, because she didn't think she was gonna be around uh, much longer. Um, so I, I I tried to heed that, and um, I went into a treatment program. Um, but again, it wasn't to um, better myself inwardly it was to um, be able to not drink or drug so that I could take care of my mom and the kids. And and, and it just doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It only worked temporarily. I had sobriety um, for five years, and I thought that I was well. Um, and I thought that I was well because my mother started um, healing. She started getting well. And I was like, Okay, she's better, so now it's time to get back to me and the life that I want to live. Um, and that's what I did. I went back to my alcohol and drugs. And each time I went back, it just got, I got further and further away um, from my family and friends and, and reality um, in and out of institutions. When um, Now I do know about um, treatment houses. Um, for me, they were just places to go and get some rest you know, so that I could rest up for the next round. Um, And that was my life for several years. I used um, alcohol and drugs for better than um, 25, 30 years. So um, it took some time. But um, in the midst of that, I was raped. Um, I was beaten Um, and then thrown in jail to boot with that. Um, And I was like, there's got to be something better. Um, why? Why do I have to live this life? Why is there nothing better for me? Why can I make the turn? I've heard the stories of other people overcoming this. Why can I do it? Why not is it working for me? And at that point in time was my first point of surrender. That's when I start having the conversation with God. If you did not sanction the things that happened to me and there is a life better for me, do something for me now. Help me to obtain this thing that I keep hearing about that is supposed to be life. Because I don't want to live this way anymore. I was just hurting. It wasn't about me being physically tired. It was about me being emotionally and spiritually bankrupt, morally bankrupt, that that pain. I felt that I was just merely existing in life, that I was walking around dead, but I just hadn't laid down yet. And it was at that point in time that I said, I want to live. I don't want to die. I have not have a life. Can I please have a life? And that's when things started getting better for me. That's when I started hearing what people were saying to me about this road of recovery. That's when the system of rehabilitation started to work for me. And I got involved into a 12-step program. That's when um, my mother passed on. And I met my now husband, um, and he supported me through that. You know, um, he told me that I was worth loving. You know, he told me that there's a spirit inside of me that's beautiful. He could see it, but I couldn't see it. And I didn't believe him. I looked at my husband as a, yeah, I got one. I got one on the line. You know, I just looked at him as a means of benefit to what ends. But he loved me in spite of that. He supported me. And even with that being said, and I went back to the alcohol and drugs, he came and got me and said, this is not the life for you. I really care about you. But if you can't care enough about yourself to add to the love that I have for you, we can't continue this relationship. And I had never had anyone to just love me for me that wanted nothing out of me but love he didn't he didn't say, "I'll do this for you if you do that for me." that wasn't that wasn't a part of. Him. and And I saw that I was about to lose that. And I didn't want to lose that.
0: What's your husband's name? Sylvester Brewer, and Sylvester is sitting there listening to this now. And back then, there was nothing in it for Sylvester, nothing except you. Why? I don't know, what he saw with me,
1: I don't know. But he hung in there with me until I believed it. Till I believed it. He also told me though when I came out of the last treatment center that you gonna have to get some more help. Um, You can't stay here without getting some more help. And that's when I went into an intensive outpatient um, um, system. Um, But he supported me for that. You know, they had the open meetings. He was there at every one of them. He himself was dealing um, with um, issues in his life. Um, His wife before me had passed on and he was trying to raise their children on his own. Two girls, you know, um, the son was off at college, you know, had established his life. He asked me to help with them. And I had not been there for my children. So I felt this was an opportunity to give back, to help someone else. Um, And he trusted me with that. And his children didn't like me in the beginning. But we became close and I didn't know that I was capable of nurturing someone or receiving that. But to receive love back from children blew my mind because all I knew was the children that were said that told that I was no good not to be around her. But there were actually little people that wanted to be around me, you know, that needed love from me and accepted it from me. Wow, that just blew my mind. That just opened up my heart, and love grew, and love grew. And from then, I wanted to um I wanted to give that to other children because I had not given it to my children. And my children were estranged from me because of what I had taken them through. And they didn't want to be a part of me except for my youngest, my daughter. But the boys, you know, that's a hard thing for um your sons to see their mother living the way that she was living. So the boys didn't want any part at all of me. But my daughter, my baby, um, she stuck in there with me and blended with his girls. And wow, it just grew. So I knew that I had something to give. I knew that I could give love. And that's my main focus today to nurture children. You know to let them know that they sustain them to let them know that they're worthy of the best and that they're worthy of love and to protect them to educate them on things that aren't good things that you do not have to accept that is my main focus but I want to offer that helps to men women as well as well as boys but they're worthy they're worthy of it and when you and when they know that they're worthy of it and they receive that love, simultaneously they give it back. And that's how love grows. And that's how the community of support around me grew. You know, God restored all that because I asked him. I didn't think he would do it, but I asked him. God restored my family to me and he did. And I'm not looking back. I'm moving forward. People started trusting me with their children. That just blew my mind. The People didn't want me around their children. That just blows my mind. And I nurtured them. They trusted me to take their children to school. They trusted me with their children after school to make sure that they were fed, to help them with their homework. Wow. To go, to walk into a room and hear someone say, Miss V, Nana, Grandma, Oh, wow, that melts me every time. It melts me every time. And, and, and I have to keep that growing. I have to keep that going. I have to because they think that they're, that I'm helping them, but it's the other way around. They're helping me, and I need that. I need that. I need to have that, and I need to give it back.
0: Now, as I listen to this and I think, what is it that made the difference? What was the turning Turning point, you mentioned that you went into an intensive drug treatment program, and I'd like to learn more about the difference between that and what you'd experienced before. But that doesn't seem to be what you're, that's not what you're talking about. What a great program you went through. You experienced, first of all, you approached God differently. Instead of with anger, you approached him asking for his help. And love came into your life. And Sylvester, you've talked about Sylvester coming into your life. And then the love of children, which engendered love for children. And love seems to have been the dominant thing you're describing here that changed your life. And this is a remarkable thing. This is a radical change.
1: Love is the main ingredient that keeps me going now. Um, with God, um, I didn't approach him a different way. I approached him with all that anger that was inside of me. I'm so angry with you, God. This is your fault. You're supposed to have all power. You're not extending any of it to me. But I don't have anywhere else to go. I ha- I'm out of options. If you are who you say you are, if you are different from this God that I've been introduced to, Show me. Show me. I'm opening up to you now. I'm surrendering to you.
0: And he did show you.
1: And he did show me. He did show up. I've never known a love like it before. Because when things started changing, I knew it was no one but him. I was in so many situations in that lifestyle that I was living that I could have perished. That I could have been sentenced to years. That I could not have been reunited with my children that I would have never met that man over there that loves me unconditionally, that I would have never been of assistance to his mom or his children. That's all because it started with God when I surrendered to God. Then love was introduced. If love was already there, I never saw it, but that's when I began to see.
0: Now this is gonna embarrass Sylvester here, but it seems to me that when you reached that point in your communication with God, God responded by sending you an angel named Sylvester Brewer. Yeah. And that often is the way God works. It is.
1: I met my husband at a concert, an outdoor concert, um, and we were out there listening to the music, and I don't know what attracted him to me, but he came over and, and started listening to the music with me because i'm one of those people that knows the lyrics to all the songs so i was just singing and dancing and he came over wow you know that you know that you know i remember this when i was growing up that song whatever and so we started talking and he brought me dinner and when the concert was over i thought we were just going to go our separate ways he said um would you mind taking a ride with me mind you this guy rode up on me on a 10-speed bike um, he said well um, let's go to the beach he put the bike on the bus we got on the bus and we went to the beach and we talked to the sunrise you know um, it was very intimate and when I say intimate he talked to me here he didn't talk to my body he talked to me here to my heart that was the most beautiful thing that I had experienced with someone of the opposite sex and he didn't want to let me go even after that He wouldn't let me go. He said, let me take you to breakfast. And we went and had breakfast. And then he asked me for my number. I thought about giving him a wrong number, you know, as um, was my M.O. when I didn't want to be bothered with someone, when I couldn't get gain out of someone. That was my M.O. But I gave him the right phone number. And he followed up. He called me. And it's just, it's been on since then.
0: Something prompted you to give him the right phone number and something was prompting him, this is a relationship worth pursuing. Yeah. And you both responded to those promptings. Yes. And look where you are today.
1: Yes. In 2007, he asked me for my hand in marriage. And in 2008, before God, our family, and our loved ones, I gave my hand to him in marriage. And we've been, we've had our ups and downs, um, but we're still here.
0: So, fifteen years later.
1: Fifteen years later, we're still here. We're setting the example of what love and work produces. Um, it may sound fairy tale to you, but we've had our issues. Please don't, please don't take that out of the equation. We've had our issues, but. We have come together to discuss those issues and come to a plan of action to get past those issues. You know, and then there are just times that we agree to disagree. What we have is not worth the disagreement. I love this guy. He's, he's, he's my constant support system.
0: See, that's commitment in love. Yes. It's not, that, it's not a fairy tale. It's not, and they lived happily ever after, because sometimes what comes after is a lot of struggle together, mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. the struggle is with each other mm-hmm. but through the commitment in love, with God's help, I know that sounds to some people that are saying, oh that's that's a fairy tale. No, no it's not it's
1: not, no, it's not i when I do something or think about something, I examine or I think. How would that make my husband feel? How would that benefit our marriage? How can that make us stronger? It's no longer about me first and nobody second. It's about us. And setting an example, being grateful that he was allowed to come into my life. That's what that's about for me. You know, only when only when I think about others. Am I able to give unrestrictedly, and it and it just it's like like I've put money in the bank and I'm reaping the the uh, the increase. That's what this guy is for me. That's what my family is for me. That's what this love. I I man, it it, it I don't know how I could get much better than this. But if it does, God, I've been waiting for it. But uh, I'm I'm, I'm happy. I'm not in like with my husband. I'm in love with my husband. I'm in love with my life. I'm in love with my children. I'm in love with the upward mobility that I'm gaining. You know, it's just getting gooder and gooder. (laughs) And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And And any obstacles or struggles that come across my path, I learn from them. They're just building blocks now. I'm not defeated. I'm no longer broken. No longer am I broken. And when I run across a piece that I have to address or that I have not addressed from the past, because the past comes up when I see it in someone else or when I come across an issue and, and my past makes itself known, I address it either with myself or with my friends um, from the 12-step programs, but first with my husband. Whatever it is, we get through it together.
0: Do you still go to meetings?
1: I do. I still have a sponsor. I still do 12-step work within the program and out of outside of the program. Those outside of the program don't realize that's what I'm doing. But you can only keep, that's a true saying, they have a lot of cliches, but that is a true one. You can only keep this by giving it away. Because if you don't, You're back to just you, just you. I'm just a pebble. I'm not even a pebble. I'm just a grain of sand on the beach. And that's pretty pathetic. You can't have a beach with just a grain of sand. It takes all of us. I I need everybody to be who I am, to share who I am, to help others grow.
0: Fergie and Sylvester, it is a privilege. It's an honor to meet the two of you. And Fergie, to hear your story. and and Sylvester, to hear, hear Virgie, Virgie talking about you and sharing your part in her life, I can't help but just marvel at how, if we had been having this conversation 16, 17 years ago, you would never have imagined that you would be sharing the things that you just did with me today. And yet, here you are, it's real. It's real. And there are people who are listening, who can probably identify with where you were, what your life was like when you were just existing. And perhaps listening to this gives them hope, but also gives them a path and a plan forward with what is it that made the difference in your life and that can make the difference in their lives. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. My hope is that whomever sees or hear this knows that wherever you are, wherever your struggle is, whatever is going on, if you can just believe that you're worthy of it, that you're worthy of better things and that you're worthy of life, that state that you're in does not have to be your end. You can grow. Things will get better because they have for me. Please, This, I hope that this is reaching someone so that they can be a help to someone else, that they may know that it's going through this, that they will see that there are options, that there are entities around that are willing to help them. They're there. I didn't know that those things were possible or were available to me because they weren't, but they are now. So please take advantage of those things. You don't have to do this. I thought I had to do everything by myself, but I don't. There are places, there are people that are willing to help you without looking for anything in return, but your betterment. I pray that you take advantage of that, that this story helps you, that this reality helps you because it's not a story. This was my life. This is my life. And I know that someone has gone through this or is going through this or know someone that has. Please know that that does not have to be the end of your story. I am grateful to um, Cabrini, um, the Cabrini um, legal system, um, to um, Mr. Hanlon and others like you all that have reached out to help me there. I never thought that people would care to help, especially the legal system, especially the legal system, because they never helped me. But now. I'm getting help from all around, especially the legal system. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. I am in awe. I, I, I can't even find a word to fit it. Um, the amount of help that's available today is there for you to avail, to take advantage of. I don't know what else to say It's there. Your story, wherever you are now, does not have to be the end of your story what you put in store, you always have a reserve to take from. And he, he, God and my husband and those around me are my, are our reserves. You know, um, again, you don't have to do this alone. It's it was very hard for me to share and to realize that I didn't have to do these things alone. And when you're sharing a burden, it is lessened and I'm very appreciative. I am very appreciative. That's why I need to give back. I have to give back. It's not an option for me. I have to give to those that have sown into me so that they can sow into others, you know, so that there'll be a great harvest. I have to. It's not an option.
0: All I can say is amen and amen. Amen. Verge's story was eye-opening, wasn't it? No one listening could think or feel the same again about justice or healing for victims of such abuse and trauma as she and others like her have experienced. Her story, and those of others shared on this podcast, need to be heard by thousands of people—even hundreds of thousands—if we're to achieve our objective, of creating a critical mass of public support for meaningful reforms in our criminal justice system. You can help by sharing a link to this and other episodes of Justice Voices on your social media. And, if you'd like to contribute needed financial support to this program as a tax-exempt charitable organization, please contact us through our website at justicevoices.org. That's Justicevoices all1word.org. We need your help. Spread the word. Help us, make a difference. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and commentary about justice, healing, and safer communities.